I'm Nestor Castaneda, lecturer here at the Institute, and for me it's a real pleasure to introduce Dr. Gustavo Flores Macias, and thank, uh, thank you very much for coming, I know that this was a long day for you, uh, who is going to present a talk entitled, oh sorry, a talk on the relationship between security and taxes in Mexico. Dr. Gustavo Flores Macias is an associate professor of government at Cornell University. His research focuses on two main areas, the politics of economic reform and taxation and state capacity. Uh, he has published a lot uh, about different topics in very prestigious journals like the American Political Science Review, Comparative Politics, Journal of Conflict Resolution, Journal of Democracy, Journal of Politics, among others. His book, uh, which I think is now a classic on, on neoliberalism, uh, after neoliberalism, the left and economic reforms in Latin America, studies the economic policies of left-center left -center governments in Latin America and won the Latin American Society Association Tomasini Award in 2014. So it's a real pleasure to have you here today at the Institute. Um, without further delay, please join me in welcoming Dr. Florian Macias. Thank you. I, I appreciate your being here. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you, Nestor. And good, uh, it's good to see familiar uh, faces. I appreciate your coming, Kevin, and, and everyone. Um, I, don't worry, I know it's a very long title, but it will not be a very long talk. So um, this, is, this is part of a bigger project that has to do with the relationship between taxation and public safety in the region. I think of it as a project that has to do with state capacity uh, in Latin America. And what I'll present today is, is a study at the individual level that has to do with public opinion, with individual level preferences of how people respond or how people see um, their willingness to pay taxes for public safety. So I'll, I'll um, walk you through what I've done here in a second. But let me um, show you first a research question that, that I'm focusing on. In, in essence, um, it, there's an important question in political economy of development, I would say, that has to do with what is the relationship between these two aspects of state capacity, the aspect that has to do with public safety, order, or rule of law, and on the other hand, taxation. And um, in particular, this, this research focuses on when is it that citizens or, or the public might be willing to pay more in taxes than they already do in order to achieve a reduction in crime or an improvement in public safety. Um, basically, the, the motivation for this, for this study has to do with the fact that these different dimensions we normally think of order and taxation as dimensions of state capacity. Maybe some of us will think about the literature on the emergence of strong states in Europe and sort of Tilly and, and how is it that war um, makes a state but also the state needs revenue to wage war and, and how it's these security threats that push governments to tax more and taxation brings at the same time these quid pro quos with those who are governed, right? Okay, well, I'll give you my money, but you need to guarantee certain things. You need to provide certain public goods. Um, but not a ton has been written in the context of the modern state. So again, there's a literature that deals with maybe 16th century Europe 
there are some 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 studies that you know deal with uh, post-colonial Africa or maybe Centeno's work on, on Latin America, um, but they, they tend to be historical. They tend to focus on the early uh, part of of state formation, and rarely do they focus on the individual level or the micro level. It's always sort of this macro bird's eye view. Um, another reason why um, I believe this is important is because there's, there's quite a bit written on, the, on how preferences are formed in um, terms of what, what people prefer for public policy. And there's a literature that focuses on Europe mostly, on the advanced democracies, including the United States and Canada, as to when people will look for the government to solve problems. And um, not a lot has been written in this sense in the context of the developing world. And, and this is another reason why I think this research is important. And the third one is, um, you know, there's a literature on, stake on, on taxation that focuses on what, what is known as the fiscal terms of trade as to, well, what, what is it that people get in return of their taxes? What, uh, is it, what is important for them? What makes people pay taxes at the end of the day? And, and I believe this also contributes to understand what is important for people, what are the public goods that are important to them, and to what extent um, these, these goods make them pay taxes or more willing to pay taxes than they would otherwise. Um, what, I'll, what I'd like to do today in, in the next 25 or so minutes has to do with, uh, you know, I'll walk you through the literature, the point of departure, and sort of some of the expectations that have not been applied to the context of taxation on uh, public safety. <coughs> they have been applied to other realms, mostly the economic realm, mostly um, the realm of economic risk having to do with maybe unemployment or, or economic shocks or a crisis or inflation, other, other types of risk, not necessarily personal risk in, in the sense of crime. Um, I'll, I'll say a word on Mexico, which is a case that I use to, to look into some of these hypotheses. I'll walk you through the research design and talk a little bit about the findings and, and why I think they make a contribution. Um, let me start with what I believe is the dominant perspective in terms of how people, how individuals respond to risk and what they do to ameliorate this risk. And there's this, I call it sort of this civic mindedness that emerges from crime. And there are two strands of the literature. Um, there's one, as I was saying, that focuses on, develop, on the developed world, mostly focusing on risk mitigation. And it's this sense of, well, what do people do when they face risk? You know, we can think of maybe insurance programs, right? Insurance at all levels. Maybe there's, you know, insurance that has to do with the weather and agricultural products. But we can also think of just health insurance. You know, in the future, we might get sick. Um, same thing happens with economic risk. We maybe put money away for retirement and so on. Um, I've included here a few examples. All of these authors focus on, on either Europe or the United States, Canada. And, and the idea is that the, the key insight here is that individuals will look to the government to buffer risk. In other words, greater government intervention is this avenue that individuals look for in order to address this risk or to ameliorate this risk. There is very little written in the context of crime, 
There's one study by Rueda and, and Stegmuller. This study focuses on crime, and the conclusion that they reach is consistent with the conclusion for this, this literature. In the context of crime, individuals will look to, this, to the government. They will favor pro-government, pro-redistribution policies in order to ameliorate risk. So uh, the idea, in a sense, uh, if anybody's familiar with this piece, individuals in Europe who are wealthy particularly will look to the government, they'll be willing to pay more in taxes so that the government can address the crime issue and provide protection. That's, that's the essence of this literature. Again, it's, it hasn't been applied to taxes. I'll, I'll tell you what I think is the application of this to taxes, but it's this, this notion that fear of crime will lead to pro-government policies or government involvement in, in addressing the problem. This study by Greta and, and Stegmuller, by the way, focuses on fear of crime in the sense that perceptions of crime are important. So I may have never been a victim of crime, but if I feel that crime is an issue in my community, this is, this is what will motivate me to involve the government in addressing this risk. There's a second strand of this civic-mindedness literature that focuses on the developing world, mostly in the context of um, Africa, in the context of, of violent conflict. And, and the insight here is that victims of violence and victims of crime will also become more engaged in public affairs to try to address the problem. Bellos and Miguel, Bladman, others have written in the context of, of violent uh, conflict. Uh, Bateson has written in the context of crime, regardless of whether it's violent or not, and how victims of crime report becoming afterwards more engaged in public affairs. Maybe they are more likely to vote, they're more likely to attend uh, town hall meetings, to attend community meetings, to solve problems, to participate in political discussions. So in this case, it's not necessarily behavior that clearly favors government intervention, but it's behavior that suggests that individuals become more engaged in public affairs to try to address the issue of crime. This literature focuses on being, having been a victim of crime, whether one personally or perhaps a relative, right, a family member. Um, it, it does not say much about perceptions of crime, but it focuses on being a victim of crime directly. So basically putting these two together, the, 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 what I believe this, this dominant perspective, the civic-mindedness perspective tells us is that uh, both perceptions of crime immediate perceptions of crime in one's community and having been a victim of crime motivates people to both become more civic-minded, more engaged, and at the same time favor government intervention in addressing the problem. Now, the literature deals with different behaviors or different ways of becoming more engaged. So voting is one of them. We can think of voting as being an important way to, to shape uh, the way that government works. 
We can think of maybe you know, writing to one's uh, congressperson or member, member of parliament. We can think of participating more in politics and party meetings. We can also think of paying taxes, even though this literature hasn't addressed it, as one important way of becoming engaged in public affairs. Right? If one thinks about all of the civic duties that one has, perhaps paying taxes is just as important as voting or, or perhaps more important than participating in, in party meetings and so on. So I, I would argue that, uh, that paying taxes is a quintessential form of civic behavior. And, and when I say I would argue, I, I should have said very early on, this is a co-author paper uh, with, with um, a colleague at Cornell, it's a grad student, uh, so it's, it's really we argue. Uh, so the expectation here is that crime will increase willingness to pay taxes because taxes are a way of empowering government if one is really worried about the government addressing risk, in this case, crime. An alternative argument, and it's the argument that we uh, advance here, is that crime will actually lead not to this greater involvement in, in fiscal affairs, but quite the opposite, this disengagement in fiscal affairs. And really the origin of this view has to do with the, the literature on the fiscal contract. Right? There's a literature that points to people in general, taxpayers, responding to what they get from the government, determining what they might give to the government in return. So if I'm very unhappy with the roads, they're full of potholes, I might not, I don't, do they call them potholes here? I don't know what they call it here. Um, I might say, you know, this government just doesn't work, it's not working for me at least, I might be less willing to pay taxes. That's, that's the essence of this view. Um, in the context of the developing world, this correlates also with this notion that governments are, um, they cannot be trusted, that they might be corrupt, that the, that the money that I'm giving to the government might be embezzled or wasted or, or it's going somewhere where it shouldn't. It's, it's a perception of state failure that is common in the developing world. There's fear and mistrust of government. And all of these translate into uh, this, this reluctance to give resources or additional resources to the government. Um, so the expectation really would be the opposite, right? that, that crime and personal experiences with crime would decrease this willingness to pay taxes to address the problem. The, the, this, this fiscal contract literature doesn't say much about how these personal encounters with the public good translate into these perspectives, right? And this literature focuses on public goods in general, again, from roads, perhaps healthcare, education, public safety. Um, it doesn't say much about whether it's, whether I have to be directly affected by crime or whether if I hear relatives complaining about it, I'm also going to be affected by it or if it's just my general perception of society and whether crime is a problem in society. Um, but there is a literature that points to sociotropic considerations, that is, considerations that have to do with perceptions of, of how society as a whole is affected as being important. Economic voting literature points to this. 
uh, research on immigration, on trade, on, on social policy, just general attitudes towards these uh, policies point to people's perceptions of sort of society, of how the country as a whole works, rather than my own personal experience. So um, because of this literature, really, the expectation would be that um, it would be general perceptions of crime, not necessarily whether I've been a victim of crime myself or whether I've encountered crime uh, personally that would matter. Just this, this sort of summarizes what I've just told you. There are these two general big views, one that correlates or, or corresponds to a fiscal contract view, which is the one that we're trying to advance, and then this other view in the literature that I think is a dominant view in the literature that has to do with these two strands of civic-mindedness or crime really being, being conducive to greater involvement in politics and government, one having to do with risk mitigation and the other having to do with which is victimization. And, and in the victimization case, it can be a material consideration, a material motivation that um, is moving victims of crime to do something about it, or it could be expressive, it could be effective, it could be just a way to, to feel empowered after the a traumatic experience. Regardless, it's, the expectation is that victims of crime will become more involved in that case. Let me say a word on Mexico, which is uh, where we conduct this study. Um, as you know, I think Mexico has become well known for, for uh, increasingly high levels of crime, uh, basically since 2006. Um, crime, if we, if we look at crime statistics, especially homicide levels and kidnapping, extortion, um, all of these indicators have increased. I'll show you some, some figures in a second. Um, just to give you a sense of what people are, are reporting in terms of how crime affects them, uh, in this survey we conducted 22% of respondents reporting having been a victim of a crime themselves in the, in the previous 12 months. This can mean a number of things, right? Crime is a very generic uh, question. Have you been a victim of crime? It could be extortion, it could be uh, someone punching you in the face for no reason, it could be uh, a pretty serious crime or white collar crime, or maybe people don't really know, who knows? But it's 22%. And then th about 32% report that at least a uh, family member has been a victim of a crime. Um, we know that in, in the country, public safety has become the number one concern. So people, uh, when asked, what do you think is the number one problem in this country? Uh, you know, some people will say public safety, other people will say drug trafficking, other people will say uh, thugs or gangs or whatever, but when you combine all of these, public safety is the number one concern. And since 2006, the anti-drug efforts have been militarized, so it's, it's become a fairly salient issue. Um, this, this graph hopefully shows how typical Mexico is in terms of, of Latin America. I don't know if typical is the right word, but, but Mexico's, um, these are homicide rates. It shows that Mexico is it's somewhere, it's very close to the Latin American average. It's, even though it has received a lot of attention in the, in the media recently, um, it's not, you know, it's, it's not the country with the most homicides. It's not a country, it's not, as, you know, Honduras or Venezuela or Colombia, somewhere in the middle, close to the average. Homicide rate is for 100,000 people. So the, the rate in Mexico, right, you know, this is uh, around 2013, and this is, data from the UN Office for Drugs and, and Crime. But, you know, it has been around 22 per, um, homicides per 100,000 people. And of course, homicides is just one indicator of 
prime, it's an indicator of violent prime, but researchers normally tend to like it because data tend to be available, or right? it's a lot harder to find data for uh, car theft or, or other, other types of, of crime. Um, this shows the evolution of the homicide rate in Mexico for the country as a whole since 2005. We see that there's, you know, year to year, there are some pretty wild changes. Um, you know, in 2006, uh, the crime dropped almost by 20%, but in 2008, it went up by more than 60%. And then, uh, you know, so, so from one year to the next, you can have a fairly dramatic swing in terms of homicide and, and the homicide rate. And in terms of taxation, well, you know, Latin America as a whole tends to underperform in terms of the, the tax to GDP ratio or the, or the share of tax revenue as a, um, with respect to the total size of the economy. Mexico is one of the worst performers, so the line, this is sort of globally, the line um, gives you a sense of where countries should be, uh, giving everyone else. And, and the gap between the line and the country sort of indicates that the deficit or, or where the country should be. Uh, so Mexico is one of the worst performers, but Latin America, all the red, all the red triangles, um, most of them are underperforming. So again, Latin America generally problems with crime, um, problems with, with their ability to tax. Mexico is sort of typical in terms of, of uh, crime, but it's one of the worst performers in, tax, in terms of tax to GDP ratio. And we make the case, or we try to make the case that, um, you know, Mexico could be representative in terms of the, the crime aspect and that it's a very hard case, in fact, on the tax side, because people have, are just pretty used to not paying taxes. And, and, and what we can learn from this case, um, it could be, in a sense, sort of a hard case to get people to pay taxes. Maybe things will be easier in other contexts. In terms of what we actually do with this, how, how do we go about trying to answer this question as to the relationship between public safety and taxation, and how, whether people are actually willing to make more in taxes in order to, to obtain a decrease in uh, crime. Well, we conduct this natural representative survey in Mexico. We conducted it in 2013. It's a probability-based sample. It, it, it should be representative of the whole country. Um, the, the enumerators conducted face-to-face -face interviews. They, they went to, to people's homes to interview them. Um, what we use to measure sort of how much people are actually willing to pay for public safety is what is known as a contingent valuation method. And this is a method that is often used to try to get a sense of how much people are willing to pay for um, non-market goods. So things that you can't just buy in the market, right? I guess, you know, one can buy uh, private security guard, not by rent or hire um, a, a private security guard, but it's, it's hard to know how much people are willing to pay for public safety in general. This technique was first developed in the context of, of the environment to try to evaluate how much people were willing to pay for, improve, for environmental um, conservation, and particularly whenever there, whenever there was a natural disaster, say an oil spill somewhere, trying to evaluate how much this was worth to people in order to assess fines and fees and so on. So we borrow this from the environmental literature and we try to apply it to this, uh, to the, to this 
public safety as a public good. You know, there's sort of a, a method as to how, how to go about doing this. Uh, there were these Nobel Prize winner commissions that tried to figure out how to do it. We basically follow the recommendation, and, and that is that one should ask this question to people, not, you know, Nestor, do you value public safety? Of course. Would you pay more for public safety? Uh, depends where you live, maybe, I don't know, but, but I would guess people would be inclined to say, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give some money. But that's in the abstract, you know, it could be cheap talk. So the way that they recommend doing this is to they present this to people as if it were a referendum, just an election or a vote. And, and this is the actual text that we use, is imagine a referendum. The purpose of the vote is to decide the adoption of measures that would guarantee a reduction, of, um, a reduction in crime of 30%. If a majority votes in favor of the measures, each person, including yourself, must pay X amount of pesos uh, more in taxes. Now, considering your budget, would you vote in favor or against or would not vote? The, the amount, the way that it's conducted is one starts with an amount that is sort of a, a middle-of-the-way amount, and then you ask the person... We start with 500 pesos. That is about $20, so in pounds, I don't know, 16, 17 pounds, something like that, right? So you start with, with 500 pesos, which in Mexico is about twice the average salary, daily salary in the private sector, to give you a sense of what that actually means. Um, so you ask someone, will you, will you be willing to, to pay more in taxes, blah, blah, blah. Will you vote yes with 500 pesos? And then they'd say no or yes. And then you ask them again the same question with a different number. So if you said no for 500, then I'll ask you for 250. Well, what about 250? If you say no, then you ask again with a lower. So we asked them three times, and the idea is that we generated these different categories. Um, these eight categories... And you can see where people, like how, how, how willing people were to pay different amounts uh, from zero to 100 pesos all the way to more than 2,000 pesos for this reduction in 30% in crime. Why 30% in crime? Well, I mean, we have to pick a number, and 30% seemed like a, a, a feasible number, one that, given change, annual changes in crime, seems feasible. It also seems meaningful, and uh, you know, something that people might actually want to pay for, not just you know, five percent reduction or something that wouldn't be uh, all that meaningful to them. Um, we focus on paying taxes for this reduction in crime. We do not focus on whether this reduction in crime is achieved through prevention or through punishment or through, you know, how we achieve this is not all that important to us. The issue of whether people would pay taxes for this reduction is what's important to us. And, and we, I would also want to mention that, you know, this notion of paying ta additional taxes for public safety may sound a little bit weird, but it's not that unusual if one thinks of you know, maybe there are private examples. If one thinks of business improvement associations in which business owners get together and they collect money every month in order to pay for 
the improvement of the business district, including public safety. And at the government level, this is also not that unusual in, in Latin America. So in places like Colombia and Costa Rica, um, it, 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 taxes that have been earmarked for public safety specifically have been adopted recently as well. You, know, you can see that most people are willing to pay very little, right? 58% uh, are willing to pay very little in addition to what they already pay. And then you see that the general distribution drops pretty quickly. So only about 16% would be willing to pay 5% or more of their household income. I mean, 5% of a household income, you know, you're thinking you value public safety quite a bit, right? Um, but, but just the general distribution drops fairly quickly, as, as is suspected. And we included a question. I, the paper doesn't focus much on this, and I, I won't talk about this too much. But we asked in an open-ended question, well, sort of why? Why would you pay this, or why wouldn't you? And, and most people said, I already pay my taxes. Right? I, I already do. Um, so this is, in part, driving this. Um, just to give you a sense of what this means, if we average people's stated willingness to pay for public safety, we get about 170 uh, Mexican pesos on average per person, about seven pounds. So um, if, you put, if you put all of this together, um, this, this corresponds to about 13% of, of the National Ministry of Public Safety budget or 36% of the Attorney General's office. Um, so again, it wouldn't, it wouldn't solve the issue of crime in terms of just throwing money at the problem, but at least it shows some willingness for people to pay for this. How, what is of interest to us here is trying to determine what drives this willingness to pay. Ultimately, whether people are willing to pay a little bit or a lot, what prompts people to pay? And um, we, we do this, we run a series of interval regressions, basically. Uh, effectively, what we're doing with, with, the, with these categories if the, if the, we're, we're censoring the depending variable, right? So we don't know exactly where people are. We just know they fall in these buckets, let's say. And, and um, interval regression allows you to estimate um, more or less sort of this, this underlying continuous variable that you can then evaluate each, each factor that you're interested in, how much it's contributing um, when you go from one value to the next. So I'll, I'll show you in a second. One thing that we did is you can see the distribution is not normal, so we, we um, transformed it. We did a, a logarithmic transformation just to make it normal. Um, and then we're interested in these, these three different main explanatory variables. One that has to do with victimization. Second has to do with perceptions of crime. And then we added a third one that had to do with objective, quote unquote, conditions of uh, insecurity in the country um, that has to do with just actual crime rates. Right, actual homicide rates at the municipal level and actual general crime rates at the state level. Um, if anybody has any questions about these, I'm happy to talk about them at the end. We included a, a series of controls having to do with variables that could be correlated with both, whether one is uh, how one perceives crime and how important crime is to, to oneself and whether one wants to pay taxes. So income is one that I think is easy to think through in the sense that maybe if I am wealthier, I can be both more worried about losing my wealth to crime, but also perhaps 
more or less willing to pay taxes. Right? If, if I have more money, maybe I can give more money uh, anyway. So trust in government, um, we, we asked people um, to rate, basically we gave them, I forget whether it's a four or five option scale, and you know, for these different institutions, how much trust do you have in them? And it asked, you know, the military, government, it's a federal government that we ask about here. And then they say, you know, <coughs> zero, very little, a little, a lot. And one may think of corruption as a crime or not. Uh, so it's, it's not necessarily appealing to, to crime issues. Um, it's just asking in general about corruption, yeah. not corruption, about trust in the federal government. This is nationwide, so um, it, it was conducted in 120 different points throughout the country. So what we find is that crime, sort of personal experiences with crime reduce willingness to, to pay, sort of more in, in line with this, um, this, this literature on the fiscal exchange, right, rather than the literature that supports engagement as a result of victimization or, or pro-government uh, engagement uh, to minimize risk. And what we find is that for each unit change in perceptions, people are less willing to pay, they're, they're willing to pay 22% less in taxes, in additional taxes. So um, to, to give you an idea of what, This is, when we ask people about perceptions of, of crime, we ask them, well, what, you know, do you, do you um, uh, perceive your community to be very safe, somewhat unsafe, somewhat safe, very safe? And then we ask the same question about the country in general. And, and you see here the number of responses that we got for this countrywide perceptions question and, and the share of the total that they represent. Um, so you see that very few people, 4%, consider Mexico to be very safe, which makes, makes sense. Uh, and then the rest are sort of distributed you know, with a, a plurality here. But that's essentially this, this result of when you go from here to here, um, there's a 22% change in your willingness to pay uh, taxes. So the amount that you're willing to pay decreases by 22% if your perception of safety deteriorates. Right? So if you go from, from um, somewhat unsafe to very unsafe, you're willing to face 22% less in taxes. We do not find any support for the other explanatory factors. So perceptions at the community level play no role. Um, Victimization at the individual level or relatives, family, no role there. And we do not find any support for objective conditions or crime rates actually driving people's willingness to pay taxes either. It's not terribly surprising. These are actually not that correlated. So it is interesting that people, the correlation between perceptions of crime at the local level is only correlated with perceptions of crime at the country level is 0.37, and then victimization is even lower, right, 0.1. So it's, it's very low correlation between actual encounters with crime, these perceptions of whether the country is safe or not, which was, was somewhat surprising. Uh, but, but I think this is important in terms of what we can conclude from this. 
you know, just quickly about controls, what controls mean, um, or, or what controls were, were relevant in this case. We, we see that the wealthier one is, the more willing to pay more in taxes. If one is more trusting in the federal government, more willing to pay taxes, also makes sense. Um, the older one gets less willing to pay taxes. And then if one is, uh, if one identifies with the one becomes uh, more willing to pay taxes. Also, if one has, there's a question there about perceptions of the president, sort of whether one believes the president is doing a good job, the current president from the pre, that uh, is not significant, but it also shows some, you know, if you think that the government is, is your government, you might be a little bit more willing to contribute as well. The way that these are included in the model is through a dummy variables for party ID for each, for pre, pan, and PRD. Party ID in Mexico is around 33% of society. So about a third of society will state in these polls that they identify with a political party. The reference category for this is people who do not identify with any. So the PRI and the PAN are more willing to pay taxes than people who do not identify. And then people who identify with a PRD are just just the same as people who don't identify with any party. Uh, my sense is that the, the pre is because people, you know, there's a, currently a, a, a president from the pre and that they're, that's picking up some of his willingness, you know, feeling that um, the government can make a difference if it's a government from the party that you identify with. And in the case of the PAN, my sense is that it could be more with I think the, the PAN is more associated with these sort of tough on crime um, policies and you know the, the PAN president uh, Calderon was the one who involved the military and, and made sort of an, an, a real issue of drug trafficking that we're going to finish it and this war on drugs in Mexico and, and my guess is that PAN supporters that's what it's picking that well this is a policy that is consistent with the views of my party and that I would I would want to finance through taxes. Interestingly, in Mexico, you know, maybe in the US, one can very clearly identify sort of Republicans as, you know, anti-taxes and Democrats perhaps as big government, and there's, there's a very clear distinction there. In the context of Mexico, when one um, tries to see whether a particular party, people associate a party with more or less taxes, there's very little association. It, it, it is rarely sort of a cleavage that drives uh, Mexican politics. The, the conclusion that, that we draw from this is that this, this willingness to pay more in taxes is responding to attitudes of risk, sort of the crime as risk, but it is it's showing a very different effect compared to what we had seen in the literature. It's, it's not only the opposite effect, but it's also um, driven by sociotropic uh, considerations. Um, which is again consistent with literatures that have to do with economic voting and other issues, but the literatures that are closest to the issue of crime, perhaps victimization and engagement, or, or even victimization uh, and uh, attitudes towards redistribution through taxes in Europe, very, very different result. What is maybe not so great about this finding is that it's, it's these same attitudes of disengagement when the, when the quality of the public good provided is not satisfactory, that might contribute to this vicious cycle if, if I disengage, if I am not contributing additional taxes, or um, it might result in even worse public goods and the quality of the public 
public goods provided would continue to deteriorate. A few things to consider. This, these are some, I label here threats to inference, but they're, they're really sort of just general questions that we're thinking, well, what about this, what about that? Um, one is, when we ask these questions, we, the, the holster who, who did this, because we hired a company there, um, there may be a social desirability bias. Again, if, if one is asked, do you want to address crime? Sure, oh, it sounds great. Um, you know, the way that it's asked, in theory, is supposed to try to address this or minimize this risk. I think that the, open, the responses to open-ended questions are very telling in the sense that people do not seem to be shy at all in terms of saying, look, I already pay enough taxes. This government needs to do better with what it already has. This, this just cannot be. I did not get the sense that people were you know, trying to be polite or anything with the enumerator. Uh, and at the same time, perhaps it's more of a concern with when this technique is applied to the environment and, and things that you know, people want to just feel good about, sort of this halo effect or glow effect. Uh, in the context of crime, I think that's a little bit harder. Uh, one important thing is that this willingness to pay um, measure that we conduct is not necessarily reflecting the, the extent to which people value public safety, but it's reflecting instead the extent to which people might actually pay taxes to improve public safety. In other words, one can value public safety a lot, just not want to pay taxes for it, and address it privately. Right? So one can try to address the issue of public safety privately, whether you know uh, maybe community hires a security guard, or I hire a bodyguard if I can, or an armored vehicle, or whatever. So it's, it's strictly to uh, the issue of through taxes. <coughs> and then the last thing has to do with uh, what this 30% reduction in crime might actually mean to different people. Maybe I live in a terrible neighborhood, lots of crime, and someone tells me, will you want to reduce 30% of crime? And I would say, yes, please. If I live in a very nice neighborhood, maybe not so much crime, and someone tells me 30% reduction of crime, like, eh, you know, it's already kind of fine. Um, so, you know, is this a problem? And in one of the models, and this is one of the main reasons why we included this objective measure of crime, or at least the, the indicators of actual crime, um, to, uh, these are at the municipal level, so at least everybody in that municipality would more or less get that control for actual levels of crime so that um, this, this issue is minimized, right? As to, well, 30% um, reduction could be a lot or not so much. We had to ask in terms of percentages in order to make it across the board something we could ask. Instead of, would you, how much would you pay for 10, 20 or 20 fewer homicides, right? With, in some places, you wouldn't even have 20. Trust in government is one of the indicators that turn out to be significant. And the more trusting in the federal government, the more people willing, the more willing people are to pay taxes. Um, the, the extent to which they're willing is, is about a similar magnitude of the effect as uh, perceptions of crime, in the sense that it's about 22% uh, as one moves up or, or down in the question is, how much do you trust the government? Again, let's imagine that we have these four, um, four options, you know, not, not at all, very little, somewhat, and a lot. 
when you move from one category to the next, from one category, let's say the, the least trusting, to the next trusting going up, uh, willingness to pay taxes increases by about 20%. So the amount that people are willing to pay is about 20% higher, which is about the same as uh, these perceptions of crime. So it's sort of this underlying part of the theoretical expectation that mistrust is one of the drivers of this unwillingness to contribute additional taxes. Thank you very much. So, thank you for